I woke up this morning and I had one of those really rare, brilliant nights sleep. And you know, when you waken up out of that sleep, you wonder what day of the week is it? And then it suddenly hit me like a ton of bricks. It's Clough Mills Day. <laughs> and I remembered then that all these things lay ahead of me for this weekend. Well, I, I did know, yes, one of the reasons I slept really well last night was because my computer crashed a couple of weeks ago and took all Clough Mills talks with it. <laughs> Apart from the fact that I had them already all on hard copy, now they obviously were not in a form that I could just present to you. They were prepared for a different uh, presentation altogether. And uh, I got a new computer just last week and I got a bit of OCR software and I scanned them all in yesterday. I went through every one of them and edited it and changed it and my head is still fried. So please, <laughs> I hope and pray and I thank you, Joel, for your prayers because I am frightened <laughs> and I am totally trusting in the help of the Holy Spirit to share the things that the Lord has laid on my heart because, you know, there's a book of the Bible. I have been 19 years now down in South Armagh. And there's one book of the Bible that I avoided preaching. And eventually I felt I could make an attempt at John's Gospel. And folks, it just was so fitting for the congregation at the time. It was in God's providence. But coming towards the end, and I didn't take many breaks out of John's Gospel, so I think it took two and a half years or something like that to preach it. And at the end, I said to the congregations, now we're coming to the end of this, where do you want me to go now? Acts. And you know, it's so true because John's Gospel is telling you about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his perfect life, his death on the cross, his atoning for our sins, and it leaves him still on the earth. And then you come to the beginning of the book of Acts, and it tells us about the ascension, and it tells us about the Great Commission, and it tells us then about the beginning of the church. And we're going to look at the beginning of the church. That's where we're going to start tonight. It's not Acts chapter 1, it'll be Acts chapter 2. And we want to read uh, from that just now. Uh, and you can see where I'm coming from. So it's Acts chapter 2. And we'll read from verse 22 through to verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. And this is God's word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Maybe I should set the scene for you because 
Who's speaking here? It's Peter. It's the sermon that he preached on the day of Pentecost. So this sermon is the start of the church, really. Uh, And here he's addressing his fellow Jews in Jerusalem. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. I feel that sometimes when we study the book of Acts, 
we approach it as though it's a, a series of loosely related stories. Stories that tell us things about the actions, uh, the experiences of the apostles as they seek to spread the gospel. Jesus had commissioned them to go into the world with that gospel. And, and we can look at the book of Acts as their experiences in doing that. However, I believe that the book of Acts should be looked at from a different perspective. Not just a collection of stories about what, what happened to the apostles after the ascension of Jesus but an important record of how our Lord established his church. The Lord guided, directed, empowered, overruled, so that his church became the church that he wanted it to be in the place he wanted it to be full of the people he wanted to be there and so what I plan to do with our Lord's help over this weekend is to try and identify some of the important truths that will help us in our mission with that same gospel to keep on growing our Lord's church. And I believe here in Acts chapter 2 is the best place to begin. Because here it identifies what the foundation of the church really is. What is our church built Upon, well, it's not our church, it's the Lord's church. What is it built upon? What is its foundation? The Church of Rome believes that Peter is the foundation of the church, and every pope follows as the Bishop of Rome in the succession of Peter to keep on building the church. But the Bible makes it extremely clear to us that the rock on which the church is built is not Peter, but it is Christ. When Christ spoke to Peter and he changed Peter's name and he said to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. He, he didn't mean Peter the stone, because that's all he really was, just a stone. He meant himself, it was on himself that he would build the church. What would Peter be? He would be one of those who helped the progression of the gospel, the, the laying of bricks on the building of the church. But the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ himself. Anything that is built in any other foundation will crumble and fall. 
There's a lot that could be said here about Jesus as the rock and the foundation of the church. But I want to focus our minds more on the things that Peter said here in this portion of Scripture. Between the ascension of Jesus into heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, not a lot was happening. The disciples had kind of lost their way. They had gone back for a while to be fishermen. Remember how Jesus visited them there uh, and had breakfast for them. He later brought them together for his ascension and told them to go to Jerusalem and wait there. And here they are. They're, They're waiting in Jerusalem. They don't even understand what they're waiting for. But on the day of the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down upon those disciples. And it came upon them with such tremendous effect that their lives were changed forever. These men, who had been cowering in little rooms, hiding away from the authorities for fear of what happened to Christ and may happen to them, now become powerful, courageous proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The tremendous change in them is exemplified for us in these verses that we have just read. These verses tell us about Peter's sermon to the assembled crowd on that day. Upon hearing Peter's address, thousands of men and women come under conviction of their sin and turn to Jesus for salvation. Thousands. I can, you know, working through the book of Acts, I I was amazed at the numbers. Uh, What we sought to try and do was build a tally of of how the church grew. And and here at the beginning, it it begins with 3,000 souls. A few weeks later, another 5,000 are added. We don't sometimes picture that. The church was growing in a fantastically powerful way. We're content when we hear of one or two souls saved in a year. What about thousands in a few days? What I want to do this evening is to take a look at this sermon that Peter preached. Could we use it? You know, I'm always looking for good sermons. Peter preached that sermon to a hostile congregation. Thankfully, this is not a hostile congregation. I have no idea 
how I could preach to a hostile congregation. But Peter did. He preached to people who had convinced themselves that Jesus Christ was a fake, a blasphemer, someone who claimed to be Messiah, but who most certainly was not. And what Peter sets out to do in his sermon is to prove to them that he is Messiah. He points them to the evidence that God has supplied which show us who Jesus really is. And here he highlights at least five pieces of evidence where God shows us the truth about Jesus, this rock upon whom the church will be built. So we want to look at these five truths, these pieces of evidence about this Jesus whom we are seeking to preach to the world. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The first piece of evidence that Peter lifts up and shows this hostile audience are the signs and the wonders that Jesus did, the miracles that he performed. He's asking these people, how do you think Jesus was able to do these miracles. How do you think he was able to do these things? If he's not Messiah, if he's not the Son of God, then how is he able to do these miracles? You need to ask yourself that. Everybody needs to ask themselves that. And what he's telling us is that Jesus is attested to us by God through those very miracles that he was able to do. Those miracles were done by Jesus as evidence towards his true identity. What is a miracle? That's a a word that's bandied about. It's one of those words that, you know... For people, a miracle is simply something out of the ordinary. The dictionary says that a miracle is an event due to supernatural agency. That's pretty good for the dictionary, isn't it? (laughs) A supernatural agency. Who is the supernatural agency? Of course, it's God. And Jesus did many supernatural things. He healed the sick. He fed 5,000 with five little loaves and two little fish. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame walk. He raised the dead to life.
And what Peter is pointing out here in his sermon is that this supernatural power that enabled him to do these miracles could only come from one place, God. And these miracles were God's way of pointing the finger at Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And here's the proof. Look at what he's able to do. He was unable to do signs which God did through him in your midst, Peter says. He emphasizes that God himself did the miracles through Jesus. Remember, Jesus is on the earth. He may be the son of God, but he is the son of man, the the second Adam. He couldn't use his miraculous power to do anything to help himself. So God works through him to attest him to the people. He was the power behind the miracles. It was Christ who healed the sick and stilled the storm and cast out demons and raised the dead by the power of God. And while he was there on earth, it's as if God was was shouting at the world and saying to them, Look at him. See him. And we know that the people were looking at him. And many people saw him and they flocked to him. They were amazed at the things that he was doing. And what I find amazing is that in such a short time they had turned against him despite the evidence. So that was number one. The miracles attested him. The second thing Peter raises here is in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God planned the death of Jesus. God planned the death of Jesus. Now the unconvinced sinner might be prompted to say to the statement, what kind of evidence to the reality of Jesus is that? If God planned to hand him over to be killed, then all he did was link arms with lawless men and help them put Jesus to death. That doesn't prove anything about Jesus as Messiah. But a response like that ignores everything that the Bible teaches us about why God planned the death of Jesus. This is why Jesus himself said at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24 verse 26, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Jesus himself testified that God planned his suffering and death so that there could be forgiveness of sins that could then be preached to the nations. You see, the difference between God's plan to crucify Jesus and Pilate's plan to crucify Jesus 
was that Pilate was rejecting Jesus as a nothing, a nobody, a convict, a cursed person. But God was presenting Jesus as his faithful servant to the world. God planned the death of Jesus not to disown him or dishonor him or reject him, but to present him as the perfect, flawless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God's plan for Jesus to die and die the way that he did die, the curse of death of the cross, was on the basis of his infinite worth as the perfect lamb. That one lamb that could atone for the sins of the world. All those other lambs that were killed were only pointing forward to this one lamb. Third proof. God then raised him from the dead. It's easy to kill somebody. It's not so easy to bring them back to life again, is it? Peter says, This Jesus you killed and crucified. But God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Yes, God allowed Jesus to die. Because his death, the death of the perfect lamb was necessary to atone for sin. But having atoned for sin, he did not need to remain under the power of death. You see, it is God who holds that power. It is God alone who can take away a life. It's God alone who can create a life. And God, having allowed his son to die, raised him back to life. And Peter shows us that the resurrection of Jesus was in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. The evidence of Scripture corroborates everything that happened, even the resurrection. It proves that Jesus is the Son of God, but also the Son of David. He's the Messiah. It was the Messiah himself that they had killed. But God raised him up. Peter means for his audience to see and feel the clash here. A clash between their rejection, their murder, their mistreatment of Jesus on the one hand. And God's acceptance of his death. And resurrection back to life on the other hand. They had sought to put Jesus down. To be rid of him. To be done with him. Gone, gone, gone. Away with him. Crucify him. 
He's only a blasphemer. But God raised him up again. You cannot be gone with him. You cannot get rid of him. You need him. You see, what matters here ultimately is not just that they killed a man, but that they are actually acting as enemies of God. And this is what shocked these people to the core when they realized that in all the things that they had done, they were the enemies of this God whom they purported to worship and to serve. They thought they were good people, moral people, God-worshipping people, people who could recite hundreds of verses of Scripture off by heart. And Peter is saying to them, No, you're not God lovers. You're his enemies. You are against him. They claim to know God. They claim to love God. They claim to worship God and follow God, Peter says. No, you're anti-God. test of whether we are anti-God or not is it's not whether we say we believe in God or whether we say we know God or love God or serve God. The test is whether we believe Jesus is the only Savior of sinners. There are plenty of people out there in this world who have a belief in God or some sort of a God. There are people who go along to churches and sing their hymns and so on and they have a belief in God but you ask them where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he alone is the saviour of sinners? Do you believe in him? Are you trusting in him alone? And you're likely to get a pretty negative answer. Folks, this is so important for us today. Around us is a live and let live society. Hardly anyone would dare to say to uh, someone today, do you know you're going to hell? Would you do that? Why not? Probably because you would be afraid of offending them. Maybe they need to be offended. Our society is blind to the reality of God. And I see this more and more and more. When I went to South Armagh 19 years ago, it was a very different place to what it is today. 19 years ago... Almost everybody in the community would have claimed affiliation to some church or other. Not anymore. They don't care. If you look at 
the role of membership in congregations today. Oh, it's so much less than it was 20 years ago. And we think, oh, the church is declining. You know, folks, I believe the churches are far stronger now than ever they were. Why? Because the people that are in them want to be in them. They want to be there. They are there because they believe in Jesus Christ. They believe that he's a son of God and the only saviour of men. Yeah, I know there's exceptions, but generally speaking. Let's consider Peter's fourth piece of evidence. Jesus is the king of kings. He says in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So they killed Jesus, but it was part of God's plan. He had to die to atone for sin. And having atoned, God raised him back to life again. And then he ascended into heaven and is exalted to sit at the right hand of God. As proof to back this up, Peter quotes Psalm 110. We're going to sing it in closing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make thy enemies a stool for thy feet. David writes these words in this psalm hundreds of years before Christ comes into the earth. Peter says now, when David wrote this, he wasn't in heaven. How did he know what's going on in heaven? Where does this come from? This is revelation given to us through David by God. And it's showing us how God would exalt the real Messiah. The real king. A king in the line of David, but better than David. Greater than David. And this is the decisive thrust of Peter's sermon. In verse 36 he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord and Christ. God endorsed him as Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He endorsed that by raising him from the dead on the third day. And then he endorsed him as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, by exalting him to the highest place in the universe. And setting him at his right hand to rule over all creation. He is the supreme power. This is Peter's preaching. Now we should see the crucial issue in this sermon. is not the killing of a man. But the rejection of God. These people 
were rejecting God. God had provided them with all the evidence as to who Jesus is. The miracles that he did. The evidence of his death as the perfect sacrifice for sins. The evidence of Jesus as the risen Messiah. And the evidence of his exaltation to the head place of the universe. And so to reject this evidence is to reject Jesus, is to reject God. Devote no to Jesus is to say no to God. That was the sinfulness of Israel. And these people, many of them began to realize this. The fifth piece of evidence that Peter presents is the power of the Holy Spirit. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see and hear. Take maybe this evening when you go home and and read what happened on the day of Pentecost again. When I studied that to preach a sermon on it, I came to see for the first time I had a totally wrong picture of what was going on. I had this picture of this room and this, this wind blowing in it and flames of fire and all the rest of it. But there was no wind. There was a sound like a wind. But there was no wind. How do you get a wind in a room? Of course, anything's possible for God, but... Look at it. And the word of what this, this phenomenal thing that had happened here on the day of Pentecost, the word about that spread and the people flocked to hear what was going on. The people were talking about it all around the streets. Do you know what's going on up there? That's what Peter's talking about here. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received in the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see and hear, this thing they had come and were talking about. The Holy Spirit. For these people, it was reality. They had witnessed it. If they hadn't seen it, at least they'd heard it. And what is at stake here and at every point in this sermon is whether or not these people are willing to admit to the evidence. Accept the truth about Jesus. The miracles. The death. The resurrection. The exaltation. And now the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. If he is Messiah, then he came into the world to save sinners. 
and I know I'm a sinner. And I am glad that he came to save me. I know many of you believe and have accepted him as your saviour. The crowd in Jerusalem cried out. When they heard that they, this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? This is the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. These people who had closed their eyes to the Lord, Peter preached a sermon, I wonder. I wonder what sort of a preacher Peter really was. He's probably a pretty good one, I think. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good the preacher is. The only thing that matters is the power of the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon. I'm sure you've heard the tale of his conversion. Spurgeon, who became one of the greatest preachers of his day. He got converted on a snowy day when he was trying to get to his usual church and he hadn't, or wasn't able to, so he turned aside into an old building and there was nobody there and the minister hadn't turned up and an old elder got up and all that he could do was continually read the text of scripture in my lame brain. I can't remember what the text of scripture was. But he just he read it over a few times and he pointed his finger at Spurgeon and he said, maybe young man that applies to you. And that convicted Spurgeon. And that day he gave his life to the Lord. It doesn't need to be eloquent preaching it's helpful when it is but what is essential is the application of the power of the Holy Spirit I'm pleased that this evening Joel began by praying that the Holy Spirit would be here with us I'm sure he will make that prayer for each of our gatherings it is so essential that we ask for that power. We need that power. And that power was present on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 souls were added to the church. The proof was there. They could see it because the Holy Spirit opened their eyes to see it. They were convicted by it and they asked what they must do. Repent, Peter says, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the foundation upon which the church is built. The truth about Jesus. He is the only possible saviour of sinners. 
at any church that builds itself in, in, on, any, on anything else is a false church. You take your Jehovah's Witnesses who pursue you continually. Well, they've stopped coming to me for some reason. <laughs> I think somebody said that they have a blacklist. So if you get your name on there, they'll stop coming. Talk to them about hell. They're not too anxious about that subject. They don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. And there's others as well. We build our church on the foundation of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together here this evening. We just pray, Lord, that you would take your word and you would apply it to our hearts as you see our need. Lord, we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of this truth that the church is your church, that the church is built on the foundation of Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the one whom the builders rejected. But you have set him on high. You have exalted him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you, Lord, for all of this. And we pray that over the next couple of days, as we consider more about this church, that you will help and enable us to see the part that we have in continuing the growth of this church. So please help us in all of this. We humbly pray, forgiving our sins and our failures, as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.